Uh, my name is Chris, and I'm also one of the pastors here. I get the pleasure of serving alongside uh, Nick and Tony. Um, I get the pleasure of discipling under Nick and Tony uh, as they walk me through um, just what it means to be a shepherd of God's people and care for God's church. So um, that's something that uh, I wake up uh, and, and I'm grateful for that I get to experience in my life. Um, so I uh, just thought I would introduce you a little who I am. I, I see some new faces that I, I don't know yet, but we're, we're glad to have you guys here today. Thanks for joining us. Today we are going to be in Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 12. Um, just a little bit of a recap. Last week, Pastor Tony gave us a breakdown of law, like what is law, the different types of law. He gave us some of the laws of the land. Um, he used an example of driving laws. He used an example of um, building codes and building laws, getting building permits for working on your home and things like that. And, and while they all serve a purpose, um, he also gave us uh, a description of some of the laws that we find at work in the Bible. And some of those uh, biblical laws that he gave us a breakdown was the Mosaic law that we find um, in, in the Old Testament, he gave us a breakdown of the law of sin. He gave us a breakdown of the law of works and the law of faith. Um, if you weren't here to, to hear Pastor Tony's message last week, I encourage you to jump onto our Gospel Community Church podcast or Facebook page and scroll back to last week and, and listen to his message in the breakdown of law and what we can learn from it. Today, in today's passages, what we're going to see is the Apostle Paul goes into kind of what role does the law play. So now that we know what law is and the different types of law that we find in the Bible, what role does the, the law play? Um, so we're going to start out. I'm going to pray, invite the Spirit here with us, and then we'll jump in and um, read God's Word, and then... I'm kind of like Pastor Tony, I like to read over it, I like to backtrack and just take it verse by verse and just unpack scripture and see what the Bible is telling us. Father God, we are so grateful and humbled and, and, and joyous to be here this morning. God, it's because of you. You woke us from our slumber. You put air in our lungs, the giver of life. And we get to come here together as believers, and glorify the creator of the universe. God, let that instill a humbleness in us. When it's so easy to focus on us and our, and our minuscule lives and all of the, the struggles and troubles that we're facing, the creator of the universe chose us to gather together to worship, to praise, to sing, to, to read and study scripture. We maybe look at ourselves, Lord, through a telescope sometimes and we consider ourselves so small and insignificant and unimportant, but you chose us and called us to be your people. God, we love you. We thank you for that. It's in your name I pray. Amen. All right, starting, uh, like I said, Romans chapter 7. Starting in verse 7, and we're going to go through 12. What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet 
if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetedness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Um, so we know from our understanding of the Bible and our understanding of God's word, we know that sin causes separation. God hates sin. Sin, sin bothers him. Sin hurts him. So when we sin, it creates a separation. We know that of sin. But kind of what he's going into here is what causes sin? So let's ask ourselves that question. What causes sin? And what he's kind of going through and saying here, does the law cause sin then at this point? Is the law itself sin? It, no. He, he emphatically answers that right there. And it's kind of interesting, a, a little weird side note. My verses last week started with a statement, and then by no means, three weeks ago I got the by no means again. Um, I think we looked it up at community group one night. If you want to see some of the stuff we nerd out on community group one time, I think it was, what was it, in the Bible, 70 times, 14 in the New Testament, 9 in Romans or something. Like It's, it's a pretty uh, traveled statement, by no means. He's not going to lead us astray in, in wondering, well, that was kind of obscure. What, what, what's the point he's getting there? There's that big old exclamation point. But So Paul is showing us today in today's passage, he, he emphatically tells us the law is not sin. So if we look at the law and we ask ourselves, what is the law? The law is more like a highlighter of sin, making us aware of, our, of its presence inside of us already. And when I tried to think of a couple of things to kind of paint the picture of what it's like and, and, and the role that it serves in helping us notice sin and what it is, I thought of um, when you get a new vehicle. Have you ever thought about, like, you're going through life and, and you just, everything is normal, and then you get a new vehicle. And the moment you get that new make and model and color of that vehicle, you now became aware of that make and model and color of that vehicle. And now you go down the road and you're like, Damn, I didn't realize how many white Chevy Silverados there were, which is probably a generic one to do because there's a lot of those. But now that you became aware of it, now that it's pointed out, now as you travel through life, because it's been highlighted and you became aware of it, you actually see it for what is it. You see how it's there and that it's been residing there. You buying that new make, model, and vehicle didn't all of a sudden make that many more appear on the road. You just became aware of it. And it's the same with the law. And um, so when I thought about law, and Tony talked about the law of driving and, and some of the law of the land, I thought about some of the laws of our land that we might not know are there and we don't know exist, but just the fact that we don't know about them doesn't mean they're not laws. It doesn't mean that we are not doing things in our day-to-day -day life and, and breaking these laws that were there. 
they, they just haven't been highlighted in our life yet. So I got a little list of some of the weird laws that we might not know go on that are, are here in Utah. And so now we kind of, yeah, we, we kind of point out a couple of these. And now when you go and you move through life, it's like you're going to be aware of some of these things. In Utah, it's against the law to fish from horseback. So next time you're on your horse, cruising around, you see a little stream, it looks like a good spot, dismount down from your horse before you do your fishing. In Utah, it is illegal to discriminate and not drink low-quality milk. So if you're a milk drinker, I'm a milk drinker. I'm cheap, so I don't discriminate against uh, low-quality milk. You can't, it's against the law in Utah to discriminate against the milk for its lower prices or lower quality of being made. If you're, if you're only buying the most expensive one, you're, you're breaking the law. Yeah, you, you, are, you are discriminating against Kroger. And TJ, I don't like that. TJ's a Kroger man. Um, it's illegal to detonate a nuclear weapon. State of Utah. We got, we, we got some families in the church that do um, homeschooling. They get together and do service projects and go to the museum. Maria, if it's a science week, don't go the nuclear weapon route. It's against the law in Utah. This one I thought was a little weird. A husband is responsible for every criminal act committed by his wife while she is in his presence. I got these from, I got these, yes. Yeah. He, he's, held, he's held accountable. Yeah. There's another one, the last one I'll mention. It also has a biblical tone to it too. But um, I got these from a, a Utah attorney's website that he had just updated the list October 15th. So this, this, this list I pulled from is about three months old. But um, just because they're the law, they're not practice always. It, Maria couldn't go out and just slap someone and probably plead not guilty because my husband was present, charge him. She, I would, she would probably try that defense, but it probably won't get her off. But um, anyway, so um, it's considered an offense here in the state of Utah to hunt whales, elephants, tigers, or rhinos. So none of that. It's... Um, Nick, you're into MMA and stuff. It's illegal to host boxing matches that um, biting is not allowed, or biting is allowed. So no Mike Tyson fights, no, bringing him on. Biting is not allowed. It's illegal to cause catastrophe. And Logan, women may not swear. In Monroe, Utah, daylight must be visible between partners when dancing. And Provo, throwing snowballs is out. Throwing of any rocks, sticks, snowballs, or missiles can result in a $50 fine. Um, in Salt Lake County, no one can walk down the street carrying a paper bag, not whiskey, carrying a paper bag containing a violin. So you don't go there. Um, it also says in Salt Lake County, auctions may not be advertised by hiring a trombone player to stand on the street corner and play the trombone. G get a saxophonist. Um, and then the, the last one that I, I agree with Dave had a little bit of um, biblical undertone to it. 
In Tremont in Utah, it is illegal to have sex in a moving ambulance. And if you were caught, the guy is let go, the woman is dragged out and punished, and her name placed in the newspaper. Kind of sounds like the woman caught in adultery, right? We, we don't see the dude in that story anywhere. He was let go. She was drug out. She was probably wishing they were just going to put her name in the newspaper. But my point with all of these is it is silly and, and unaware that we were that these laws existed. And as crazy as they may sound, now that they've been highlighted, now that you understand them, You'll see that there was a part of you that may have done some of these things. You're probably not killing whales in Utah, but there might be a chance where we're rolling through um, Logan, and my wife's cussing up a storm, and I'm like, dude, we're in Logan. Settle down. You know, we got we to gotta look for these things. Yeah. <laughs> but then, even in that sentence, I'll get in trouble because I'm present, and she's cussing, and I'm responsible for it. It's a no-win situation. My point is, is the fact that these laws exist doesn't mean they don't, they, that they don't hold the power to make us do these things. It's just the fact that now that we know they exist, we are heightened to the sense that we are committing these offenses. And it's the same thing. Sin is alive inside of us. The law is like, the, one of the descriptions I read about the law and sin living inside of us is it's like a sniper waiting for the right moment to strike. And when it sees us, let our guard down. And now we're aware of these things. We let our guard down. It attacks. Or it's like a magnet going by something. And right at the right moment, the magnetic pull has its pull. And it pulls our sin nature alive. And, and we, we begin to do the very things that the law is telling us not to do. So now if we jump back to verse 7 and take a look, uh, kind of line by line breakdown of what we got going. He says, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So we see here, right there, is the law sin? Because the law arouses the sin and because we've been released from the law, does that mean the law is the same as sin? As we mentioned earlier, right off the bat, he says, by no means. Certainly not. Instead, he, we see later on, he lists the law is both holy and spiritual. The law itself is not sin, but it does tell us what sin is. And we see here, Paul uses the example of covetousness. He says, I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Um, one of the commentaries and studies I did when, when preparing for this message is um, they kind of believe that Paul deliberately chose this commandment to point out the example. He said this, because this commandment, it's um, unique among the Decalogue of the Ten Commandments of what we shall see. Um, Paige, will you pull up the other slide of the Ten Commandments? When we look at these, we say, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not take the name of God in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not covet. What we see in the difference between the other nine, when we get to the last one, the 10th commandment, 
um, completely focuses on our intent, on our inward behavior, on our inward nature. At a superficial level, we can claim, yeah, I haven't done all of these other ones. I haven't done all of these other ones, but you might live up to the first nine. But that last commandment, it exposes our intentions, and it kind of brings a shameful clarity to our sin living inside of us. Paul claims that no sooner than he discovered the commandment that every kind of covetous desire assaulted him, his sinful passions became suddenly clear in telling him not to covet the law introduced Paul to the darkest side. Paul still could maintain his firm belief that God's law itself was sinless. So we see, we see action in a lot of these. You shall not have any other gods before me. It's probably because we put God in a box and he's not living up to who we thought he would be and we want our life to go these certain ways, so we're going to pick another God. You shall not make any idols for yourself. Like we can see, make, especially with the... Old Testament biblical descriptions that are going on here. They were actually, with their hands, making, doing an action step in making an idol and worshiping it. The golden calf, there's, there's many idols that they were making. They were actually doing something. To not take God's name in vain. Again, speaking, um, you should remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Well, you know, God tells us to rest today, but I ain't got time for rest. It's, it's that action. You keep going. You keep doing something. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You should not lie. All of those take an action of us putting ourselves in a situation and doing something to break that commandment. But you shall not covet. That's an example of the heart. That's an example of who we are, our character. And one of the, the other interesting things I found when studying this and going over all of this is that's kind of the, the one that, that tags along with the rest of them. It's pretty difficult to break one of the first nine and not break the tenth in unison with it. So you're not just breaking one, you're breaking two. You shall not steal. Well, that set of golf clubs back there was a little nicer than the set I'm swinging, so they seem to be just sitting out back for a few days. I'm just going to snatch those up. I don't think anyone will notice. You're not just stealing. You've seen those golf clubs. They're nicer than the ones you got. They're nicer than what you own, what you possess, so you decided to take those. So what we see here is it isn't the, like I said, it isn't the law that's bad. It isn't the law that's bringing all of these things out. It's just the law that illuminates the stuff that's already living inside of us. Verse 8. Excuse me. Verse 8, but sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. So here we, he starts off, sin, seizing the opportunity. The word opportunity right there in, is the translation of a Greek word, a foreman, if I'm producing Greek right, I don't, I'm not that guy, but what it means, the Greek translation of this word, is a military term. So that it's seizing an opportunity is a military term that denote, uh, it denotes like establishing a bridgehead or a path in an attack. 
So sin uses the law to get us to the point of attack. It prepares that opportunity to make the, the attack. So therefore, um, the commandment do not covet doesn't cause people to covet, but it arouses with them every kind of covetous desire. Then sin or the sin nature or our capacity to sin living inside of us, it seizes that opportunity. It arises when the law gives prohibition, but it offers no method of resistance. The law is there. The law points out not to do it, but the law doesn't hold any power to make us not do it. And then when we see that we, now that it's became aware of it, that military term, that opportunity, that, that pass to attack becomes there, and it happens. Um, so in, instead of reading the law as a warning, sin itself living inside of us reads the law as an invitation, seeing our sinful desires, drawing us out. So it, it's, it's like when you think about when you see in a movie or something, prohibiting some, somebody from something usually causes them to do it, right? You see in those silly movies where there's a bright red button that says, do not push this button, and you got that one person instantly pushing that button. Um, on a more practical level, it's when I am plugging in the vacuum or an extension cord, and I tell my one-year-old little boy, don't touch that cord. All he wants to do is touch that cord. So apart from the law, sin lies dead with us, but without the law, sin goes unnoticed. So it's not like apart from the law, the sin isn't there. We're, we're, if we didn't have the law, we wouldn't be sinful people. It just goes unknown and unnoticed because we don't have a bar or anything to set it to. Amen, dude. Amen. Verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So, um, this was something me and Tony and Nick talked about a little bit this morning in breaking down this verse. Paul's intimate personal expressions in the kind of the remainder of this chapter, they have caused uh, among some theologians a debate on who he's talking about here, who Paul is referring to here. He's saying, I was once alive apart from the law. So is he talking about himself before his conversion? Is he talking about, um, it often says, is he talking about Adam's story uh, in the third person prior to the law being established? And it kind of took on, um, in my studies, this part kind of took on the role of the, the Ethiopian eunuch uh, talking to Philip on the road to Gaza. Like, tell me who he's talking about here. So it kind of got on a rabbit trail on who he's referencing. Is he talking about himself or, or whatnot? But... Um, it goes on just to say whether he's talking about himself before his conversion, whether he's talking in the third person, speaking of uh, the fall uh, of humanity when sin entered the world into Genesis. It doesn't matter really what he's talking to there, but the application's the same. Before we realize the seriousness of the law and sin, we believe ourselves to be alive. It says, I once was alive apart from the thing. But when the significance of the command came not to covet, for example, it becomes clear and we suddenly realize our sin is there and the wages of sin is death. So we see that we were kind of 
misled the whole time in believing apart from the law, apart from sin, apart from knowing sin, I was alive. We were alive because we were unaware. We weren't. He says, before I had an understanding of the law. And, and, and we think, like, Paul studied under Gamaliel. He was, he was very uh, well-versed on the Jewish law. And even in that, I, I think it was just, he was, there was that deception that sin plays in our lives. Like, we don't, we don't realize it's there. We don't know it's there. We don't know it, it, it is. But once it comes, we're like, man, where I was, thought I was alive, Sin came alive, and now I'm dead. We, we know uh, for the weight of the sin is death, Romans 6.23. So that's, that's the inevitable result that we face when, when thinking of what we have living in sin. Verse 10, he goes on to say, The commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Um, from what I found in studying this verse, Paul is probably referring to an uh, uh, Old Testament passage here. Um, I didn't pull it up there, but in Leviticus 18.5, it says, Keep my decrees and laws, for the man who obeys them will live by them. I am the Lord. So he's probably saying, like, the very commandment that promised me life proved to be death. He's probably uh, quoting that command there. The commands were given to help people know how to live. But we know because of sin, those same commands brought only a heightened awareness of the inevitability of death. I did that without fumbling it. So times those big words right there had me choked up earlier. So, again, the commands were given to help people know how to live, but because of sin, those same commands brought only a heightened awareness of the inevitability of death. So now we have a heightened awareness of the inevitability of death in our life. What does that do to us? What does that do for us? Amen. Having a heightened inevitability of a heightened awareness of the inevitability of death should do one thing. It should give us a heightened awareness of the need for a savior. With without Jesus, we know yes sir, without Christ inevitable the wages of sin are death. That heightened awareness of sin should get us a heightened awareness of a need for a Savior to come into our lives. The one that stepped on the cross, the one that took our place, the one that his blood washed us white as snow. It should heighten our awareness for a need for a Savior. Verse 11, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. Sin is deceiving. We see him mention it right here. We see that attack mode word again, opportunity. And then he says, through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, killed me. We understand that that's one of the characteristics or one of the 
traits if sin was a person. And one of the characteristics of sin would be it deceives people by misusing the law. It's filled with false promises and deception. Um, some of those that we see um, scripturally and we can see when dealing with our own sin or in our own lives, sin promises to satisfy our desires even more than it did the last time. So what, whatever that sin may be, whatever it, it, it's uh, uh, pornography, addiction, um, drinking, whatever it may be, that sin living inside of you says, I know it felt good last time. Man, just hold on. It's going to feel even better this time. It deceives us to that it's going to satisfy our desires more than the time before. Sin, sin promises that our actions can be kept hidden. No one will know. So whether that sin is uh, lust or adultery, whatever it's going, well, if, if my wife or my husband don't know about it, it's not, it's not really hurting them because they don't know pretty slick i can keep my actions hidden we have a god who sees all a god who knows all hidden from a person doesn't mean our actions are going to be kept hidden sin promises that we won't have to worry about the consequences that that speaks for itself we know that we are going to have to pay a price for our sins we're going to have to uh, stand accountable and, and answer for the the things that we've done um Sin promises special benefits, wisdom, knowledge, and sophistication. Sin promises power, prestige, in exchange for cooperation. So we think about it from the very beginning when sin entered the world in the Garden even in the Garden of Eden. The serpent deceived Eve by taking her uh, focus off of all of the freedoms God had given her, and he placed her focus on the one restriction. And in that, he promised special benefits, wisdom, knowledge, sophistication. You will be like God. Sin is tempting because God said it's wrong. We are tempted to rebel and we need to look at the law from a new perspective. Instead of looking at the law of a list of the things I can't do and the list of the things that uh, we shouldn't do, we look at the law through the light of God's grace and mercy. We focus on his great love for us. We understand that the law was put in place to keep us from doing things that harm ourselves and widening the, widening the gap between us and him. The law is placed out of love. So then we ask, how did sin use the commandment as an opportunity both to deceive and to kill? Perhaps Paul had thought that the commandments in general to justify himself as righteous, in which case he was deceived. But as they read the 10th commandment, he was suddenly caught by the truth of the law. And that sin immediately added a killing guilt. He went through all of those other action things. He, he went through, thought of himself and through all of his Jewish traditions and things he lived up to and how he stacked up to the first nine. And I think we see uh, when Paul reached the 10th commandment, he was really struck. That kind of Holy Spirit punch in the gut I get a lot when I open my mouth before thinking. Verse 12. So we see all of this. We see Paul kind of agonizing in this um, little verse of scripture, though he's, we talked about it a little this morning, as he's um, writing this letter, one of, they say, the greatest theological letters written to the church in Rome. Like, I see a man struggling. I see a man distraught, kind of 
fighting with the inner demons and pouring his heart and soul out onto paper. And we've seen him talk about the deception of sin. And he didn't know the covetousness uh, lived in him until he was told not to covet. And the, the scripture that he thought was to bring life uh, ultimately brought death. We see all of this stuff that could really turn a person into saying, man, is God really that good then? There, there was all of these things I thought lined out, and, and I was wrong. I was deceived. They were off. But in, but in verse 12, we see the heart of Paul in, in understanding that God is good and an understanding that in being a good God, it was for his best interest, and it was from good intention. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And through all of this internal battle and all of this fight and all of this descriptive breakdown of what he struggled with with the covetedness and, and thinking he was alive apart from that and inevitably he found he was dead, Paul speaks no ill will of the law. He glorifies God and the commandment and is holy and righteous and good in that last statement. So even though it was an instrument used to kill him, he wasn't going to speak against it. And so, how do we know these things? How do we know that it's holy and, and it's holy and righteous and good? The law is a d direct reflection of God and who he is. And we know God is holy and righteous and good. And so that we know the law being a d direct reflection of him is holy and righteous and good. So I came kind of to the conclusion, and the purpose of the law is to teach us right from wrong and give us guidelines to show sin for what it really is. The, the law helps us live for God, but it can't save us. So then we ask ourselves, if the law causes so much difficulty, so much strife, so much angst, what useful purpose does it serve? The very simplest answer that I can give you, church, it highlights our ugliness from the illuminating power of God's goodness. We, we as believers in, in studying God's word and being uh, familiar with God and who he is, we, we have an advantage kind of in our day and age because there are religions, there are churches, there are people that want to use the law to convince people that they can earn their salvation. And the only way they can do that is by dis distorting through the law who God is. So in knowing God's word, in studying God's word, when we encounter someone trying to twist what God, who God is through these things, we have a weapon. We have a defense. We have God for who he says he is in his word, and there's no disputing that. Um, so a few things to point out that we know about God through the Bible is the Bible teaches that God just do, doesn't just do good, but that he himself is good that he himself satisfies us. It's at this point in particular where the message, we kind of find um, cultural Christianity and biblical Christianity kind of come at, at the biggest odds with each other right there. The message that we can look for and that we see in this day and age in cultural Christianity is God is good to us. The message of biblical Christianity says that not only is God good to us, but more importantly, God is good for us because God ultimately is good himself. 
The message of cultural Christianity tells us to seek God's good. What can God give me? The message of biblical Christianity tells us to seek God's goodness. The message of cultural Christianity is that God does good things for you. The message of biblical Christianity is that God himself is good for you. Um, There's a gentleman named Herman Bavnik. He says it perfectly in a quote where he said, God and God alone is man's highest good. The overwhelming message of the Bible is not simply that God does good things, but far more beautifully that God himself is good. So um, in in this battle with sin and law and and everything we've worked ourselves through up to this point, through uh, the first seven chapters of Romans, it, it can get heavy at times, but there's the good news. And the good news of the gospel is that Christ, in the goodness of God, is made visible to us by our sin living inside of us. When we begin to understand that he is good for us, we'll do anything to cultivate his presence in our lives. It's, it's at that point when we start to dis- devour scripture, and just not for knowledge, but we devour scripture for enjoying his presence, being in the presence of God. It's then that we begin to be in God's presence, devour scripture, read it and understand it, and let it uh, saturate and cultivate our lives, that we begin to see uh, um, good cultivated actions of who we are as a person, sanctification, growing in God's word, becoming better people. When we see that God is good for us, we'll begin to see that all of humanity's longings, there are people in our world that are searching, lost, struggling, grasping at anything that's going to fill this uh, uh, longing they have in their soul. And we see, knowing God, through knowing his goodness, that all of those things can be uh, um, quenched, can be filled, can be satisfied by God, God alone. Let's pray. Father God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we don't have to go through our lives guessing, making educated guesses, wondering who you are, wondering your, your characteristics. We thank you that you provided your word for us that's living and breathing and active and that we can, we can read it and we can be in your presence and we have the Holy Spirit present with us to help us to, to discern and understand. And God, we thank you for the church. We thank you for each other. We thank you for community groups. We thank you for, for uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ that even at that point when we're devouring and studying God's word and we might not understand We thank you that you've provided people in our lives that we can reach out to and we can commune with and we can study in your word together. God, I thank you for this opportunity to be here today in sharing sharing your word with my brothers and sisters. Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice. Without it, I wouldn't be here. In your beautiful name I pray, amen.